Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Communities abroad and here at home in the United States have faced tragic events, real-life horrific violence bred from online extremism. And this week, leaders from around the globe came together in Paris to sign a commitment to work together to try to prevent online platforms from becoming conduits for terrorism. And despite this largest such effort to date, launched in the wake of the tragic mosque attacks in Christchurch, New Zealand, the White House made a striking move. The Trump administration declined to endorse this international agreement, dubbed the Christchurch Call. In their refusal to sign on to the New Zealand and France-led effort, the White House broke with 18 foreign governments and several major American tech companies. The White House did say that they support the call's goals to combat extremism online, but they ultimately cited free speech concerns as the reason for their refusal to sign on. Further complicating things, just hours after refusing to join the effort, the Trump administration released a new unprecedented campaign. They asked people to use a new tool to share times when they felt censored by Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Now, in the past, President Trump has taken aim at those specific tech companies for alleged political censorship. So given these developments, which factors are actually contributing to the president's choice to opt out of this Christchurch call? Does the choice cost the United States anything on the world stage? And what does it mean for the future of tech regulation and free speech in our country? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Tony Rahm, our technology policy reporter here at The Washington Post, explained the origin and then the details of this new effort to fight online extremism called the Christchurch Call. On March 15th of this year, a far-right gunman killed 51 people in two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. And he did so while streaming this horrible massacre on Facebook. So first, I want to understand if live streaming acts of violence is a major recurring problem that we have seen across the world, or is this incident an outlier? The Christchurch attack was probably the most extreme example we've seen of an individual who had violent aims and was trafficking in online hate, using a social media platform to spread that online hate and to spread violence. But we've known for a long time now that major social media sites are huge vulnerabilities and at times can become conduits for violence and extremism and terrorism. And so in this particular case, we had the shooter uploading live video. And then much after that, malicious actors were uploading copies of that video in a way that uh, essentially went past Facebook, Google, and Twitter censors. You know, these companies have invested so heavily in artificial intelligence tools and human reviewers that can that are supposed to stop this content from spreading in real time. But malicious actors in the Christchurch attack were essentially able to get past them, which was a serious problem. Mm-hmm. And are these incidents not necessarily just live streaming specifically, but all online extreme 
extremism, is it on the rise or have some of these efforts to temper it actually been working? I think if you ask the companies, what they would tell you is it's a cat and mouse game. We've known for a long time that bad people want to do bad stuff on the Internet. And if you give them enough time, they will find a way to do it. So for every advancement they make in coming up with ways to spread their messages online, the tech companies have tried to match it with stronger defenses. Those are the things like artificial intelligence tools and, you know, more hiring on the part of individual content reviewers at companies like Facebook. Those are the sorts of defenses that they've put up against the spread of these things. And the regulators have stepped in as well. In places like Europe, for example, they've pursued new rules that would force these companies to act more swiftly to take down alarming content. And if they don't, they can face tough fines. That's the sort of thing that prods a company into addressing some of these troubles. But for every advancement they make, the bad guys do the same. Mm -hmm. Yet this week, we've seen what is the largest such effort to date to combat online extremism across the globe. Can you explain to me what the details of this actually calls for? Yeah, the Christchurch call comes from this recognition internationally that social media companies just haven't gotten it together when it comes to addressing the rise of online extremism and addressing terrorism. While they've made all of these investments, the Christchurch attack showed that they simply aren't sufficient. And so the prime minister of New Zealand really embarked on this effort shortly after the attack to rally the international community around a set of principles to address this once and for all. And so the Christchurch call has really two two main components. The first is that it tasks governments, and there were 18 of them that ultimately signed, to being more vigilant about the spread of terrorism online and to do something about it, whether it's more media education, uh, encouraging more responsible uh, media reports around uh, acts of terrorism and so forth. Uh, and then it also tasked the companies with improving their defense as well. And so that would strike at the heart of some of the things we saw with live streaming in encouraging these companies to be more vigilant about what's streamed and to take action against uh, malicious actors who may be using those tools, and then to cooperate with each other so that if there is another major attack, God forbid, that they're able to share information about who's uploading what and address the spread of that content in real time. Can you explain to me how binding or non-binding this particular commitment is? Are governments now required to take certain very specific steps? It's very much non-binding. This is okay. not a treaty. It doesn't have to be ratified by you know the individual legislatures of governments around the world. This is a voluntary commitment that governments like the United Kingdom and Australia and the whole of the European Union and companies like Facebook, Google, and Twitter have agreed that they would adopt. And so if you're a company, this is sort of good news, right? Because you've been fighting against regulation around the world for some time. This is a very nice ask and a very mm -hmm. strong commitment that they've made to improve their practices. Would you see it as a step toward regulation? I think the regulation might happen with or without the Christchurch call, because there's just broad international frustration that these companies have not gotten their acts together fast enough. And so you've seen this play out in a couple instances. Australia has considered new laws that would penalize companies for the content that they uh, leave up on their platforms if that content is dangerous. The United Kingdom has put forward a very robust proposal that would fine companies if they don't take down everything from hate speech to cyberbullying. France has considered these things. The European Union is considering these things. So potentially this could lead to more regulation if companies show that their voluntary commitments aren't sufficient. But there's a good chance that the regulation could happen anyway because there's just so much frustration with Silicon Valley. And what about in the United States? Have we seen these kinds of regulations? We've seen a lot of people talk about regulation right. and express frustration with Silicon Valley. But it's been much more difficult to address these issues here because of the Constitution and the First Amendment. I mean, the fact of the matter is the guiding document of the U.S. says the government shouldn't interfere with speech. And so even if there's a 
broad recognition on Capitol Hill, and there is, that things like white supremacy and terrorist speech is bad, the act of government writing a law that outlaws some of these things is extremely tough from a legal perspective. So we have hearing after hearing about this issue, and we have lots of very negative, angry statements at the direction of Facebook, Google, and Twitter, but there's very little Congress has found able to do about it. Okay, so how then does that fact fit into the White House's unwillingness to sign on to this call that American companies and so many other geopolitical allies are willing to sign on to? Yeah, the White House tried to have it both ways on this thing, at Mm -hmm. least in the eyes of experts. On one hand, it said it very much supported the goals of the Christchurch call, and it very much believed that social media needed to do a better job to address the rise of extremism online. And the White House committed to working with social media companies to that effect. But at the same time, White House officials told us in our reporting that they felt that they couldn't sign the document because it posed constitutional concerns, because they felt that it would create some new headaches uh, around the First Amendment, that it wasn't compatible with those protections. Now, officials didn't point to specific elements within the document when they talked to us, uh, but the U.S. had been negotiating it with other foreign countries like New Zealand and France, which led the effort uh, and couldn't come to a resolution on those issues related to government and speech. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. So you say they want to have it both ways. One way, they want these social media sites to sort of police their own content. They also want to be able to uphold First Amendment rights. What about the regulatory piece of it? Where does the White House and their political views on regulating these companies fit into that equation? Yeah, the White House has talked a little bit about this uh, from the general perspective that Perhaps there's a need to regulate social media at a time when there are plenty of ills on there like extremism. But for the most part, with this particular instance, the White House has sided with this belief that what they could do is help promote better speech, that they can use voluntary commitments on the part of the companies uh, and work on the part of federal agencies to amplify good stuff online so that that drowns out the bad stuff. And that's something that predates the Trump administration. The Obama administration actually put federal dollars into this idea that there was a way to counter violent extremism if you just gave better speech more of a voice on social media. Instead, this White House is focused on a completely different matter entirely, and that's allegations that social media sites are biased against conservatives. Now, that doesn't sound on its face to have anything to do with the Christchurch document that many countries signed uh, just earlier this week. But the White House has said in many instances that it feels that Facebook, Google and Twitter systematically seek to remove conservative leaning users and their viewpoints from their major sites. uh, And it's threatened regulation in response to that because they see it as a free speech issue. Mm -hmm. Now, that's alarmed a lot of free speech activists who think the White House has no business going after something like this or threatening to regulate Google search results or individual tweets, for example. But it exposes something of an incontinuity uh, with respect to the White House's position, according to experts. On one hand, they're willing to say that they aren't going to sign this international document out of concerns that it could set a bad precedent for speech. And on the other, they're talking about regulating that speech because of the political ramifications of these allegations of bias. Right. And one piece of evidence toward that second point was that this week, the White House launched a tool for people to use if they feel they've been wrongly censored by social media companies. It was 
quite a un- remarkable tool that the White House put out. We've really never seen anything like this with respect to social media sites. The White House was asking people to share their individual stories about allegations of bias on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and whatnot to turn over their contact information so that the White House could reach out to them outside of Facebook and Twitter. That's their own words. They said they wanted to do that. Uh, and even their contact information and their links to individual user profiles on social media, the goal being potentially to amass some sort of docket, some sort of you know data set that helps prove the White House's point that these sites are biased against conservatives. Now, the sites themselves say that they aren't biased. You know, if you talk to Twitter, for example, one of the things they said yesterday was that if they were biased, then they would lose half their user base here in the United mm-hmm. States. These sites can't afford to be on one side of the political ledger or another. Uh, but in terms of the specific link between Christchurch and the petition and the survey that the White House put yesterday put out yesterday, they didn't draw the link between the two. Mm-hmm. I think it's largely experts and free speech advocates who have looked at this and have thought there's a serious discrepancy in what the White House is saying here. Mm-hmm. And based on your reporting, when it comes down to the First Amendment and the role that technology companies play when they're distributors of speech, but they have the power to potentially determine what speech rises to the top or what speech is limited or who can use their platforms. Is there a consensus from experts around whether or not it's technology's job to combat things like the misuse of their platforms? I think that there's a belief that there is a legal obligation and a moral obligation on the part of these tech giants to be more active in policing their platforms. You generally hear a lot of conversation in Washington around this thing called Section 230. It's this little-known portion of federal law that essentially spares tech companies from being held liable for the content posted by their users. And that legal shield essentially has allowed Silicon Valley to grow the way it has, because if it didn't exist, then, you know, You would see a ton of lawsuits targeting Facebook and Google for bad things that their users put online, or potentially those companies just wouldn't offer anything at all. They wouldn't allow users to put up their own content because they didn't want to invite legal liability of any sort. And so what's baked into that protection, that lawsuit protection, is this belief that the companies have the power to moderate. In holding them, you know, in in shielding them in the way that this law does, it, it says that Facebook and Twitter and others should have the power here to go after bad things on the Internet, uh, to take down things like white supremacy, to enforce their own rules, uh, whatever those rules may be. They have the power to do that. That was what Congress intended when it enacted that law decades ago. There's also a moral obligation. I think that there's a belief that if you're going to offer a service like Facebook or YouTube, you should ensure that service is not used to cause harm to people. Um, You should ensure that that service is not used to spread things like white supremacy and to encourage attacks on people based on their backgrounds, their their race, their gender, their ethnicity, and so forth. And so there's a lot of demand on tech companies if they're going to offer this technology to also be good stewards, to be good defenders of what's happening there. Mm -hmm. And figuring out exactly what it looks like to be a good steward is the challenge. Yeah, figuring out what it looks like to be a good steward, writing those rules, and then enforcing them consistently. If there's one element of the president's anti-conservative bias allegation, that I think do resonate with people on both sides of the aisle. It's this belief that tech companies haven't been consistent in their enforcement and occasionally function as black boxes. You don't know why you see what you see on a site like Facebook. You don't know why sometimes a piece of content has been taken down or even that has been taken down at all. And so this desire for transparency, I think, reflects the great, vast uncertainty uh, that a lot of folks harbor with how these companies work. Mm -hmm. Okay, so before we wrap up, I just want to talk a little bit about the international aspect of this. Given that the White House has decided that this international plan might run afoul of the First Amendment, 
does combating online extremism have to be a global effort inherently, given that technology is sort of omnipresent around the world? I think it's most efficiently done Mm -hmm. if it's a global effort because these platforms are global. Things that are posted in one country can go viral on the international web and people in other countries can see them. And we have a lot of instances in which uh, U.S.-based platforms are being used to cause harm in foreign countries. I think Sri Lanka is probably a good recent example of this. After we saw the attacks in Sri Lanka, the government there shut down access to Facebook and to other social media sites because they feared that those technologies could be used to create more ethnic violence, which is something that has happened in Sri Lanka in the past. Uh, The ethnic tensions there have been worsened by Facebook, and the government has previously accused the company of just turning a blind eye to it. Mm -hmm. So unless there's a global approach to these things, where the country that hosts social media companies is working with countries that are feeling the effects of social media companies, I think there's this belief that the efforts won't be as effective as they could be. But we've seen in many other instances that when the U.S. is unable to act, other countries are willing to step in, and sometimes their efforts have a global effect. And so we saw this on privacy, which sounds a little bit weird, but the Europeans put in place the world's toughest privacy rules, right? They change the way that companies collect and use data, and they promise steep fines if companies violate those rights. Uh, Even though that's a European law, that's changed tech companies' business practices around the world. And so there's a chance that that could happen here. If we see a tough piece of regulation put into place governing the way the tech companies offer content and impose steep fines on them if they don't take down the bad stuff, there's a chance that they could adopt some of those approaches globally. So it certainly could have a domino effect. Does our failure to join the Christchurch call make it less effective globally if the U.S. doesn't participate? Well, I don't think it helps, right? I mean, I think it would be powerful if the United States had signed on to this very symbolic document that 18 other governments had backed because so many U.S. tech companies had signed on to this document that 18 other governments backed. But I think the U.S. runs the risk of being left behind here if other countries are working with tech companies to consider the approach. That's one of the things I heard consistently. While there are some who think that the White House had a very good point to make about free speech here and about the effects it could have given the Constitution. There are others who felt the White House had essentially took itself out of the conversation. And if you're not there, if you're not offering your thoughts every step of the way, there's a chance that policy can be made without you. All right, Tony, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? As always, let us know what you liked, let us know what you didn't, and keep on listening. Thanks so much. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the one-year-older Carol Alderman. That's right, it was her birthday this week. Wish her a happy birthday. With design direction from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 